Hello, shower killers and apartment dwellers and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us all about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hall. Our guest today is a documentary filmmaker, and as we've said before, our favorite documentary filmmakers are the ones who make documentaries about films, and he has certainly done that. His filmography includes The People vs. George Lucas, 7852 Hitchcock's Shower Scene, Memory, The Origins of Alien, and Leap of Faith, William Friedkin on The Exorcist. Uh, His most recent film, You Can Call Me Bill, about William Shatner, premiered just a couple months back at South by Southwest. And his new theatrical release is Lynch Oz, which opens on Friday, June 2nd. He's also creative director at Exhibit A Pictures. Friends, this is Mr. Alexander Philippe. Hi, Alexander. Hey, how's it going? Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about uh, about your incredible work. Well, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be, to be here. Thank you. So, okay, so I first saw Lynch Oz um, almost a year ago at Tribeca. Mm. It is really terrific. I will not mangle what you're doing in it by trying to summarize it myself, because what I love about this movie is that on the surface, you know, it's about the tremendous influence of The Wizard of Oz on the work of David Lynch. But... It's about more than that, it seems to me. What what else would you say you're you're kind of delving into in this movie? Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, I I you know obviously you know the film, as you said, is about this sort of very fascinating, weird relationship or sort of mirror effect, if you will, between Lynch and Oz. Uh, but it's really a film about the mysteries of uh, influence and inspiration on the creative process. I mean, this idea that. You know, and it's not just filmmakers, but artists in general, when you, you know, you grow up uh, and and certain certain films, certain works of art, uh, certain events, you know, make this sort of deep, deep uh, lasting impression on you. And then when you when you eventually become an artist, you're essentially sort of trapped by them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> whether, whether uh, you're conscious of it or not, they always find a way to sort of creep back into your work in some way, shape or form. Um, but, you know, but that's not a, uh, it, it's not a sad thing. It's actually a really beautiful thing. I mean, I think, uh, you know, and in fact, it's David Lowry in his chapter in the film, who talks about this idea that, you know, you, the, the, you have to sort of dig deeper and deeper and deeper into this, right? Fellini, and I'm paraphrasing, but said something like, you know, I keep making the same movie over and over again. You know, you've got Andrew Wyeth. He kept sort of painting the same uh, the same hill over and over again. I mean, there's right. something really sort of beautiful about that. Definitely. Uh, yeah, it's it's it's. It's just a, it's a terrific examination sort of sort of of the creative process and of what drives us to make art and to and to reflect the art that we love. Um, as I mentioned in the intro, you really you make these wonderful documentaries where you analyze these really iconic works of cinema. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious, you know, what what is it that drives you to 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 to, to crack these movies open in this very yeah. thoughtful way and this very visceral way and and to take on this particular form to do it as opposed to, you know, the written word or, or any of the other sort of ways that that people tend to uh, talk about movies. Or- yeah, well, you know, I mean, first of all, I I grew up, uh, you know, as as a cinephile. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, I mean, some of my early early 
memories are, are movie memories. Um, I remember watching Hitchcock, you know, certainly remember Vertigo when I was maybe three or, you know, four. Wow. Uh, lots of Columbo. Uh, I remember... <laughs> I remember Eyes Without a Face, which obviously oh, wow. 1960, right there, you know, and yeah. that, that left, of, of, you know, and and for for a couple decades, you know, I had these sort of images burned into my brain, and I I I you know, but I didn't know what that movie was, but I remembered the images, and then eventually I watched it, and then it all came back, you know, I was like, oh wow, so that's the film that you know has traumatized me since I was like. <laughs> old uh so that was that was the moment um but you know i yeah i mean so as a kid you know i was uh, i was watching a lot of horror movies and i was deconstructing or trying to understand you know how how they were made you know i remember Mm. very sort of obsessively you know going back with my you know on my vhs player you know rewinding and pausing and going frame by frame and trying to figure out how this is all done um and you know I really became a filmmaker by, I don't know if you call it chance or serendipity or fate. I'm not really sure. It sort of made sense ultimately. And I'm obviously really drawn to these, you know, not just movies, but sequences, scenes, moments that have transcended the medium and that have become cultural events, Mm. you know. Yeah. Uh, these movies that have become that are these sort of really powerful, visceral collective experiences that uh, have marked uh, a generation, and yeah. I'm really, really interested in understanding why. Yeah, um, because there's very few of those, you know, and it's very interesting, I think, especially today now to look at those movies like a Psycho, like an Alien, like an Exorcist. Uh, when, you know, we, there's seems to be less and less of a shared culture now because there's so much, there's just so much stuff out there, you know? Right. And I mean, it's, you know, old movies, but also new movies, you know, there's, you know, the the common ground, I mean, sure there's Marvel and Avatar and things like that, but, uh, you know, um, we're losing that a little bit. And so I keep wondering when is going to be that next experience? I mean, the last, the last really sort of viscerally felt movie experience collective experience i've had was in 1999 it was the blair witch project mm-hmm. uh, i you know you, you felt that movie like a wave in the right. audience right uh, the final shot you know there's this sort of collective collective sigh of dread you know yeah and uh i have not felt that since and i'm, I'm sure it's gonna come it's gonna happen but i'm, I'm waiting for it Right. Right. Oh, that's so, that. Yes, that's that's so good. Yeah. Because you're right, because these are all films where at least, you know, whether it's the, 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 the entirety of the film or a moment or a scene or something in it has become our common currency uh, and a way that we can all sort of talk to each other. And it does feel like we, we lose that. Um, the, mm-hmm. the, the more mm-hmm. we sort of splinter into, uh, our, our, our hyper-focused algorithmic viewing patterns. Um, all right. So what year did you choose to talk about tonight and why? Well, you know, I, I chose 1960. Uh, you know, I, I, I really wanted 1982. <laughs> 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 Again, <laughs> I have to be honest. Uh, yeah, 1982 was my sort of big sort of formative year, I think. Sure. I think that, that was the year where I sort of, without knowing it, where I became a filmmaker. You know? mm-hmm. Sure. But, uh, but look, I mean, 1960, uh, you know, 
uh, you can hold it up against any other year for multiple reasons. And it's just, it's just way up there. You know, the obvious reason when you look at my filmography, of course, Psycho's in there. We're going <laughs> to yes. talk about that. That's a dead giveaway. Um, but, but I will say if you, if you boil it down yeah. to the core, uh, for me, there is one reason, one reason 1960 could be said to be one of the greatest years ever. And it's the apartment, the apartment, the apartment. Wow. Uh, yeah. That movie alone, I think, puts 1960 on the map of the greatest years ever. It is. It's a perfect movie. It's a yeah. perfect, perfect movie. Yeah. And yeah. the two of those next to each other are a real a study in contrast as to to the kind of variety that we are going to see in 1960 as well. Before we get into those, Mike is going to do a, a quick tour of the year's news. Uh, here's headlines. In January, Jacques Picard and Don Walsh became the first humans to reach the lowest spot on Earth when they went into the Mariana Trench. Hey. So keep that in your pocket to annoy James Cameron if you ever meet him. <laughs> in February was the beginning of the Greensboro sit-ins when David Richmond, Franklin McCain, Azell A. Blair Jr., and Joseph McNeil decided to integrate a Woolworth's lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina. Yep. They were brave young black men, and they set off the sit-in movement, which inspired the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So this is February when they're being yelled at and spit on and assaulted, etc., right? Okay. Keep that in your other pocket for later in this segment. <laughs> okay. Also in February, the first CERN particle accelerator came online in Geneva, Switzerland. They haven't got us all sucked into a man-made black hole yet, but they're still trying. All right. And that's my, you know, that's where I was raised. That's where I was raised, Geneva, Switzerland. So Yay! My, Home. my own backyard. Yeah. I had many friends, actually, many friends whose parents worked at the same. Fascinating. So, yeah. All right. A little hometown news. Well, for then you know who to blame. <laughs> when we all get sucked into a black hole. <laughs> In March, the Pentagon announced that they were sending 3,500 American troops to Vietnam to wrap up that whole Viet Cong situation. So, wow. bing, bang, boom, no sweat. How'd that turn out, Mike? Uh, we're focusing on 1960. All right, here fun. we go. Here we go. <laughs> Here's a fun fact. We had a sentence in 1960 wherein everyone from Latin America was listed as white, including like black people from Dominican Republic, indigenous Mexicans, <laughs> descendants of slaves in Brazil, uh-huh. all, all, all the colors. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so there's some things, there were some things to work on in 1960. Yeah. Yeah. In Moscow, a Soviet court tries American pilot Francis Gary Powers for espionage. Spectators at the highly publicized proceedings include Powers' wife and his parents. In the courtroom, as foreign cameramen are barred, Powers pleads guilty and says he was under contract to the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. In May, the Soviet Union shot down an American U-2 spy plane and captured CIA agent Francis Gary Powers. We claimed he was like a weatherman or something ludicrous like that, but he was flying a very fancy plane for cloud watching, and <laughs> literally no one was fooled. So we'll put a photo of him on the substack looking very uncomfortable in his high-tech flight suit. All right. I was, you know, I've been workshopping a joke all day about the U-2 spy plane and putting the phonograph record on everybody's Victrola. <laughs> and I, I, it, I, I didn't come up with anything. Just carry on. 
Done. Also in May, four Mossad agents kidnapped shitbag Nazi Adolf Eichmann in Buenos Aires and okay. flew him back to Israel where he was put on trial and hung by the neck until he died. All right. They have guns. I wonder why they decided to use a rope. I, you know, whatever, whatever works. It's probably a shoddily tied knot too. Good. Fuck yep. that guy. Yep. Uh, okay. Now we're, we're, we're back. We're in summer now, right? Remember okay. the lunch counter story from, from February? Yep. In July... Yep. After losing the equivalent of nearly $2 million in today's money, the previously mentioned Greensboro Warworth's lunch counter desegregated when store, managed Curly Har- store manager Curly Harris asked four black employees to change out of their uniforms and quietly order lunch, making Geneva Tisdale, Susie Morrison, Anitha Jones, and Charles Bess the first people to integrate the lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina. All right. Nice work. And now uh, there's a piece of that lunch counter at the Smithsonian Museum. If you'd yeah, like to go see it, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah I like you it. can't sit on it, but you no. can look at it. Don't yeah. fucking sit on it; they will I throw will, you I out. W- why would I sit on it? My, you're really accusatory with this warning. <laughs> I don't care for it. In August, the French Empire in Africa disintegrated, leaving Benin, Niger, Burkina Faso, Ivory Coast, Chad, Central African Republic, Gabon, Mauritania, and the Republic of Congo in control of their own countries, at least. If not necessarily their own destinies. At 7.19 a.m. Eastern Time, Senator Kennedy was elected President of the United States. The NBC Victory Desk has just given California to Kennedy, and that gives him the election. Now, here is the difference it makes on the electoral vote column, the all-important one. It gives Kennedy 296 electoral votes in our editorial judgment. He is still leading in states with a total of 41 electoral votes. Headed toward a total of 337 for, to, for 192 to Vice President Nixon. And in November was the U.S. presidential election when John Kennedy probably beat Richard Nixon. Let's just say he did. Let's, we're gonna, let's go with the history here. He pro- yes, yes. <laughs> he, definitely got, uh, he definitely got sworn in. There you so. go. <laughs> Dalton Trumbo, one of the Hollywood Ten, received full screenwriting credit for the first time since The Blacklist for his work on Spartacus, which was released in October, and Exodus, which was released in December. And if you'd like to know more of Dalton Trumbo's uh, fascinating story, I recommend the documentary that's out there and not the terrible Brian Cranston movie that was made out of his life story. <laughs> really bad stuff. All right. Also, 1960, The Beatles started their 48-night residency at the Indra Club in Hamburg. Hey, I heard those boys got pretty good during that uh, that residency. Yeah, something about 10,000 hours or something. Yeah, there know. you go. And the 50 star, Jason, if you just played more often, you could write songs <laughs> like John I Lennon. Know. Okay. I sure could. Hawaii, after a half century of campaigning by the people of the islands, the official proclamation from the White House in Washington brings it into the Union as the 50th state. President Eisenhower, in the presence of Vice President Nixon, House Speaker Rayburn, and dignitaries of the new state, signs the proclamation with pens which will become treasured reminders of the historic ceremony. And the 50-star flag debuted in 1960 after Hawaii was admitted to the Union in 1959. Great. New flag. I don't really know how, what, it's like the pattern of the stars, I guess, was what was new. (laughs) Yes. All right. Uh, People had a ton of kids, and you've heard of some of them. Hey, Boomer. Uh, Oliver Platt, Dominique Wilkins, Tony Anselmo, the voice of Huey, Dewey, and Louie Duck, Dorothy <laughs> Stratton, Kelly LeBrock from Weird Science, and other things, but in my mind, Weird Science. Right, sure. Uh, Jennifer Grey from the Dancing in a Lake movie, 
Mm-hmm. Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, uh, Lovebug Starsky, Kristen Scott Thomas, Chris Elliott of Get a Life fame. He was in other things too, but again, we're focused sure. on my childhood. Sure, Thomas sure. Hayden Church, Aaron Brockovich, okay. uh, Jane Lynch, John Leguizamo, Richard Linkletter, and David Duchovny. That's going to be my dream blunt rotation for the week. Jane Lynch, John Leguizamo, Richard Linkletter, and David Duchovny. No, that's a good one. Yep. Uh, Antonio Banderas, Timothy Hutton, Sean Penn, Brentford Marsalis, Damon Wayans, Hugh Grant, a lot of actors, Colin mm-hmm. Firth, uh, JCVD, which is both an actor and a movie recommendation. Very good. Uh, the, the Foot of God, Diego Maradona, Tilda Swinton, Stanley Tucci, RuPaul, Daryl Hannah, Julianne Moore, John michel Basquiat. Yay. And finally, the world was blessed with both Chuck D. and Professor Griff on the same day, August 1, 1960. Very good. Fight the power. Fight the power. Uh, in sports, the, the Pittsburgh Pirates beat the New York Yankees four games to three to win the World Series. The Boston Celtics beat the St. Louis Hawks four games to three to win the NBA Finals. The Montreal Canadiens swept the Toronto Maple Leafs to win the Stanley Cup. And Arnold Palmer won all of the golf tournaments. Wait. You're talking about the the beverage guy, right? That guy played golf. <laughs> yeah, before he was a uh, famous huh. for a lemonade drink. Huh. Uh, yeah, he he, he had some ho- he had every- some balls and some holes. Learn something new every week on this show, Mike. You know what the best variation of the Arnold Palmer is? Tell me. It's the John Daly, where you make an Arnold Palmer but you put vodka in it, which is Ooh. funny because John Daly was a drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hilarious, right? Alcoholism, yeah. hilarious. Sure is. Three well-trained USA boxers fought exciting final matches and won gold medals before a capacity crowd of 16,200 wild-eyed fans. Wilbert McClure defeated Italy's Carmelo Bossi. Eddie Cook of the USA took an even closer decision from Poland's Tadans Wallasek. But the most popular USA winner was the lighthearted Cassius Marcellus Clay V in white here, who easily defeated Poland's Zbigniew Petrakowski. Clay was by far the best of the USA boxers. There was no World Cup in 1960, but there was a little event known as the Olympics, sure. where the world was introduced to light heavyweight gold medal winner Cassius Clay, okay. who would go on to become the greatest boxer of his generation, and maybe yep. any generation, as well as a sparkling example of a real American hero. Yep. That's headlines. Thank you, Mike. Uh, excellent headline segment. All right, Alexander, you ready to do a top five? I'm ready to do a top five. Absolutely. All right. So uh, should we should we start with the the obvious, the the most immediate, the movie that people who know your work would like to hear you talk about first? Yeah, but you know, let, let me actually frame those five first, real quick, because it, and it's funny because this was not at all intentional, but. All five are black and white. Okay. Yes. Good. Uh, four out of the five are movies in which stairs play a major role, which is very <laughs> interesting. And, that is. And, right? And, and three yes. out of those four, and in three out of those four, death lurks at the top of the stairs. So I'm not sure what that's wow. about. Wow. <laughs> but there you have it wow so, uh-huh yeah what is the first then of our black and white stare dominated death obsessed <laughs> films well of course it's psycho the murderer you see crept in here very slowly of course the shower was on there was no sound and uh
like, I mean, there's, there, there's so many directions one can go. Uh, you know, obviously I made a whole film about the shower scene, certainly, and uh, we'll make yeah. another one down the road. Um, really quite obsessed with this particular movie. It is not my favorite Hitchcock. I, what I is? Be very, uh, it's Vertigo. Uh, well, Vertigo okay. is my favorite film of, of all time, period, you know. So, gotcha. so 1958 was kind of in the running also, but then I thought, <laughs> you, you know, just for Vertigo, but then I, I felt 1960 sure. had probably more meat as a, as a top five, you know, for, for me personally, anyway. Um, there you go. I mean, Psycho, you know, was so groundbreaking in so many, in so many ways. I mean, I, I think the real sort of admirable thing for me about Psycho is this idea that, that Hitchcock was a filmmaker who had nothing left to prove at that point, who could have mm. retired after North by Northwest and called right. it good, and would still today be the great Hitchcock. I, mean, I, said, right. I said 1958, I mean 19, 1959, sorry, North by Northwest, 1959. Uh, and, uh, and instead, what does he do? He makes, this, he makes this film, this little film that basically everybody was telling him you shouldn't do it. It's, it's beneath you. <laughs> right. And, and yeah. he, and makes, and just shocks the world. I mean, it's the, it's the movie that I think most people remember him for certainly in, in so many ways. I mean, it obviously transformed movies, it transformed culture. Uh, you know, this, this, um, uh, you know, idea of, of, killing your protagonist halfway through and mm-hmm. and leaving you in this weird creepy motel with uh this strange guy and his you know mother uh, <laughs> uh it's it's it was really so incredible you know i mean I, I remember you know obviously so many incredible interviews that i've done but but peter bogdanovich you know and mm. and when he told me that uh you know when he went to watch psycho for the very first time uh, in the in the theater, not knowing what it was about, that you know, when mother pulls the curtain open, uh, that he couldn't even uh, uh, you know hear Bernard Herrmann's score because the the, the 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 audience, the scream was so loud, people were freaking wow. out. Yeah, and imagine that. You know, just imagine. I mean, that that you know, that's it's not like that score is kind of low key. You know. <laughs> <laughs> It's like right in your face and you couldn't even hear yeah. it. So yeah. talk about a collective experience. Um, yeah, no, definitely. And and yeah, like there there was no such thing as a slasher movie at that time. There this was not a thing that happened regularly in movies, was that so, you know, someone just popped in with a knife to murder someone. Right. Um I think I think the the movie it's it's one of those films that's become so ingrained in our culture and such a common reference point that it's 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 almost impossible for any of us to mm. sort of understand the kind of impact it must have had. Yeah, I mean it it's you know um, it it still lingers. I mean the, the the ripple effect is 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 real, and I think it's always going to to have that that effect. I mean you know you you can. You can think about those movies, you know, like a Psycho, like a Star Wars, you know, that that sort of that are so transformative that you can speculate. Well, you know, what if Psycho had not existed? Uh, what would movies be like? And you can't, you know, what would culture be like? And you can't, you know, what if Peeping Tom had become, you know, the standard? Right. What, what if people had sort of latched onto that one, you know? Right. And and but Psycho completely sort of sucked the air out of 
peeping Tom, you know? And, uh, and, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, I think, I think, you know, Hitchcock for a long time had really worked very hard at becoming our sort of creepy uncle, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, it's no mistake that, you know, the trailer to Psycho that he gives you the tour, you know. Oh, I love that trailer so much. Fuck. Amazing. It's amazing yeah. stuff, you know. Um, and so, so you know, I, he, he was at that point very much a, a, a part of it, you know. Yeah. He, and, and, and I think, uh, I think people bought into that and they wanted the thrill. You know, Peeping Tom is a more serious movie. It's a darker film. Mm-hmm. It's... Um, you know, it's an ickier kind of film, and I don't think people really wanted to go there. I am curious, b- before we move on, having uh, now, like, as you mentioned, made a whole-ass movie about Psycho, are <laughs> you tired of Psycho, or can you still, like, throw it on and enjoy it? No, no, no. I mean, I'm not... I Usually, you know, when I make a film about a film, I, I probably sort of let it, you know, leave it alone for about a year, you know. I, there's a sure. point... You know, after working so intensely on a particular film, you have to you have to just sort of let it go. But then eventually, yeah, I mean, right now, in fact, well, I, I shouldn't say much, but there's there's a project that is psycho tangential that hmm. uh, we're about to embark on. So um, psycho is very much going to be a part of my life again very soon. I'm going to step back into the shower, as it were. I love that. I can't can't wait to see it. Can't wait to see it. All right, yeah. Alexander, what is the next movie on your top five? Oh, let's go with. Uh, well, look, I I think I already gave it away, so we might as well talk about it. The apartment, the apartment, the apartments, right? Jack Lemon in a delightful role, which gives full reign to Jack's amazing versatility. Shirley MacLaine whose glowing warmth lights up the screen like a Christmas tree. Fred McMurray. This is a Fred McMurray you've never seen before. You know, you see a girl a couple of times a week just for laughs, and right away they think you're going to divorce your wife. <laughs> I ask you, is that, is that fair? No, sir, it's very unfair. Especially to your wife. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Billy uh. Wilder's sophisticated sex farce romantic comedy uh, examination of the the empty life of the urban drone. Uh, what do you love so much about the apartment, Alexander? I mean, you know, I, I, any person with a beating heart must like, surely like this movie. I mean, it's, and I'm just going to put aside all the technique. I'm going to put aside the tonal tightrope, really. That that okay on from the beginning, but you know, just uh, it is so. F- funny and tender and heartbreaking and beautiful you mm-hmm. know these two characters who are both equally unlucky in their love life you yeah. you know who who are somehow you know drawn together through extraordinary circumstances you know it's like what all of us romantics out there sort of hope would happen to us someday you know mm-hmm. uh i mean i you know it's interesting because i was i mean i watched that movie countless times but i i um i rewatched it of course for uh for this podcast just Ooh. a few days ago and uh and you know the the end the final moment yeah. you know uh, the shut uh, up and deal I was sobbing. I was sobbing, yeah. like a baby. You know, it's it's uh, it's 
just so you're like, oh my gosh, like everybody should experience this in their life. Yes. You know? <laughs> You know, uh, yes. it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And then, of course, you think, you know, and then the sort of the, the ending of The Graduate in a completely different way, but this sort of like, you know, he's on the left and she's on the right of the frame. And, and it's mm-hmm. a sort of like perfect juxtaposition of shots of a movie that I equally adore. You know, mm-hmm. the, you know the, the, the Graduate, you know, sort of comes to mind. But, you know, I mean, just to throw a few things out there uh, out, of, out of so many, um, I mean, you know, Jack Lemmon's, extraordinary performance yeah i i i I find myself focusing more and more on just the subtleties of his acting i mean the the the, this this extended scene which you know it's a long shot and he's on the phone and he's at his desk and he's got this bad cold yes and it's all these little gestures and moments and facial expressions and it's just absolute perfection it is absolute perfection but like, I think he I think he's an actor. He makes it he he makes it look so effortless mm-hmm. that I think it's very easy to take his skill for granted, if that makes oh. any sense. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's but I think that's that's for me. I think it's his greatest performance and, and he's got yeah. many great performances. But that this one, man, I just. Wow. Uh, yeah. You know, full on. Um, but, you know, look, I, I think. I, I always look at, you know, one thing I learned from Friedkin is this idea of grace notes, what he called grace, mm. calls grace notes. And and um, the grace note of the apartment is one of the greatest in, in, in movies. And it's, of course, mm-hmm. the spaghetti, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, of course, the moment is set up beautifully that he has this racket in the in the kitchen to drain his spaghetti. Right. Which is such a cool sort of tender moment. But but then going back to it when she has left and all hope is gone, she has gone back to uh, Sheldrake. She's mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know probably never coming back into his life, and he and he he goes to the kitchen and finds this lone spaghetti and wraps it around his finger. And you uh. know th- this, I, I wish somebody had kept it and 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 left it to dry. You know, because to me, it's like that's like as consequential to the history of movies as the snow globe in Citizen Kane, as yeah. the Golden Idol in, in Indiana mm. Jones. That spaghetti probably ended yeah. up in the trash somewhere. <laughs> it's heartbreak. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It is. It is. Um, fun fact about the apartment and i didn't know this until i was doing show prep according at least to the afi film catalog the apartment and psycho were originally released one day apart in new york city oh my god and that that is a good that's a good weekend at the movies right there man that's that's like literally the best weekend in movie history (laughs) the next podcast best weekend ever (laughs) (laughs) oh god all right alexander what is the next movie on your top five (laughs) okay well uh, The Housemaid by Kim ki ah. Oh, 
talk about some stairs. Oh, talk about <laughs> stairs. I mean, this is the it's just batshit crazy. I mean, yes, <laughs> perfectly put. Yes, batshit yeah. crazy. Mike and I, n- neither of us had seen this one before you you put it on this list. So we we saw this one fresh for the show. And Alexander, holy shit, this movie, holy shit. <laughs> it, yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's really something. And and you know, the, the, here's a little known fact: he actually made. Uh, he actually remade th- this particular film four additional times. Oh there my are god! Five versions of the housemaid. I actually keep wanting to try and convince a film festival because I've I've talked <laughs> to the Korean Film Archive. They're like ready to do it. I yeah. you know I'm putting this out there. If there's a film festival that wants to do a series of let's all go films, that'd be amazing. Yes. So, I mean, where do you begin? Like, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, to me, like, this is a movie, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the melodrama of all melodramas. It puts Douglas Sirk or even Raffaello Matarazzo to shame, like to absolute <laughs> shame. I mean, you have everything you can put, sort of possibly imagine, right? Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the student who's obsessed with her piano teacher, uh, her friend who gets caught in in that particular situation and commit suicide as a result of getting fired. You have the housemaid who's of course, immediate trouble who behaves very yep. strangely, who seduces Mr. Kim becomes pregnant. Of course, at that point, you know, he has, you know, two kids and his wife is already very pregnant. So you've got all this yes. stuff on, right? Uh, he is pushed to the, to the point of confessing to his wife who convinces the maid to throw herself down the stairs to induce <laughs> miscarriage. I mean, come on, right? Yeah. And then at that oh. point, as as Tarantino would say, it turns into a, a, a revenge-o-matic, right? There you uh, go. But it's a chamber revenge-o-matic. It's you're yeah. staying inside, <laughs> right? She yeah. kills the son who also falls that you know to his death down down a flight of stairs, uh, almost kills the newborn baby blackmails and essentially enslaves Mr. Kim, forcing him to sleep with, with, uh, you know, with her, uh, you know, the, the wife and her daughter now try to attempt, you know, they they attempt to poison the housemaid. I mean, it's just like, and and then by the end, it's like, Oh, and it was all a fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like Dr. Caligari on steroids. Yes. <laughs> no, I I I was crazy about this movie, but the thing that was really striking to me about it was that, you know, there's been a a lot of coverage, uh, you know, a lot of nostalgia and conversation and analysis lately of erotic thrillers. Uh, yeah. Friend of the show, Karina Longworth, just did an episode of her podcast a couple weeks ago about the Blank from Hell movie, you know, the Nanny from Hell mm. movie, the Secretary mm. from Hell movie, so forth and so on. And all I could think about as I was watching this was like, Jesus, this was the 25 years ahead of its time template yeah. for erotic thrillers. This is the Made from Hell movie. Um, and it hits so many of the notes that those that would become part of, you know, the blueprint for those movies. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, the thing that I want to say, too, that's really interesting to look at is the is the set design. I mean, oh, the, yeah. the walls are psychedelic. It's this sort of psychedelic concrete, like 3D dreamlike concrete. Mm. It's yep. I've, I've never seen anything like this. Right. And then you have these weird masks on the walls, 
you have this weird doll in the bedroom that wears this like black dress that is sort of hovering over the couple like a demon. Yeah. Uh, you know, the opening, the opening, you've got the, the kids, you know, over the sort of the title dripping with blood. Oh, yeah. They're playing with this with strings, which is to me like it, I immediately thought of the opening of The Wild Bunch. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, yeah, you know, definitely. Yeah. You know, it's this sort of like this sort of incredibly powerful, uh, uh, you know, metaphor that is going to sort of resonate throughout the film. Um, and it's right there and it's, and it involves kids, you know, also, um, what a film. Well, and they're, they're playing cat's cradle. So there's this real sort of like, everybody's bound to each other, you know, like you said, like it becomes a sort of chamber drama or mystery or, or killer movie at some point where, you know, everybody's sort of trapped together and everybody's sort of connected to each other in a way that they can't see a way out of. Uh, yeah, the, the cat's cradle opening was, was Pure cinematic genius. <laughs> I, I don't really know like how else to describe it. No, I, I agree, and that I, I was I didn't know it was called that. So, so so thanks for saying. Actually, I was looking for you know what what is this game called? But uh, that's a really I'm, I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's awesome. All right, all right, Alexander. What then is the next movie in your top five? Laventura. L'Aventura, Michelangelo Antonioni's erotic adventure that travels from the core of human desire to the surface of casual passion, magnificently told against the lavish background of the affluent society of present-day Europe. L'Aventura, unfolding in vividly etched scenes of unprecedented pictorial splendor and sensuality, the lives of a group of unsettled people in a constant, never-ending search for spiritual and physical fulfillment. Mr. Antonioni. Antonioni. Now, <laughs> even though, even though we're not dealing, that's the only one that doesn't really have uh, consequential stairs. Uh, okay. There's a lot of climbing, though. <laughs> that's right. That was the You've got people going up and down the hill, up and down the hill. <laughs> you know, so, there's a lot of things to fall off of. Yes. So it, it thematically works, I think, with this little program, I think, that we have here going. Um, there we go. You know, I mean, I, I, I have I have a less emotional response to this film, but that's obviously by design because it's sure. about alienation, right? Sure. Uh, but but I have a very 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 strong relationship to Antonioni's cinema. I mean, I think you could absolutely make the argument that this is, you know, the 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 first sort of full. Uh, expression of his style sort of coming to life, you know, as yeah. as, as the first, uh, you know, of a loose trilogy with La Notte in 61 and the Eclipse in 1962. Uh, you know, this uh, architecture of the landscape, this, uh, you know, very specific aesthetic, the thematic ideas of, of alienation, these really strange characters that are not likable, uh you know it but it it draws you in um through a, a very strange kind of craft i mean there's a certain kind of sorcery i think to antonioni films because yeah. because his characters are so not likable he finds other ways to draw you in you know mm. and um and and that I think is really just absolutely fascinating, fascinating and sort of riveting 
uh, to watch. I mean, you've got, you know, and also the way these characters, these sort of like blasé, uh, you know, wealthy uh, characters uh, who don't have much to do with their lives, apparently, you know, uh, <laughs> and, 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 the, and the lines they're throwing, you know, there's this great line at the party when this guy says, you know, after all, 40,000 people disappear every year in Italy. That's almost enough to fill, to fill the San Siro Stadium. And I'm like, wow, what a cold thing to say. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, there's this 17-year-old kid, right, who's, who, who paints. And then this, this, you know, this woman in her 30s who's, who's uh, you know, attracted to him. And he, you know, he takes her and Monica Vitti to his studio. And then she, she asks him, what do you feel when you're painting? And he responds, a shiver. And I'm like, wow, you know, that's, yeah. but that's the world, you know, that's, that's really the world yeah. of, um, of Antonioni. And, and, you know, there is a connection also to Psycho in the sense that even though it doesn't happen halfway through the film, it's about a quarter in, but, you know, something happens that completely turns the film in a, you know, takes it in a completely different direction, which is the, the, the disappearance, the disappearance of, uh, uh, of Liam Asari. You know. Right. And that's such a fascinating the way that thing is handled, too. Like it's you know, we talk about I mean, Jason has talked about this with, you know, Fun City Cinema, about the concept of New York City as a character in the film, you yeah. know, and is that's sort of influencing people. And we talk about this with, you know, Hong Kong movies and stuff like that. Right. And there's this, you know, the character, there's a character in the movie that disappears and it is the 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 absence becomes a character and her replacement. And and it's a, you know, that's sort of a hard thing to explain until you're watching the movie. You know, it's one of those, like, you know, I can't define obscenity, but I know when I see it, like (laughs) you're watching the movie and it stops becoming about sort of just finding this person. And it becomes about how different people react to the search and, and, you know, their own sort of feelings of, of, maybe not being, you know, not replaced necessarily, but of just sort of being replaceable. I, I don't know. Like it, this, the, the silence is very loud totally. in this movie. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I mean, if you think about the final scene too, you know, this, which, you know, I, I, Antonioni is so great at these sort of final moments. I mean, I think about the final sequence of uh, the eclipse. I mean, it's one of my all time favorite sort of, you know, final sequences. It's, it's absolutely transcendent, but, but that, you know, that shot, that final shot, you know, when she finally sort of, you know, she puts her hand on his head, you know, and, and then you had, you cut to this extreme wide shot and on the right hand side of the frame is this wall. And then on the left hand side, there they are. And then the, and then the, the background is Mount Etna, which is, you know, a very, very active volcano. And it's just that that image just carries so much on, on so many levels. I mean, you think about, you know, all the stuff that happened during that disappearance and the surge on the Aeolian Islands and, you know, the way all of that is shot very much architecturally as well. The 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 juxtaposition or or the rift really between the city, the city life and, and, and nature, which is also right there. You know, um, and they they talk about this in the opening scene. You know, this idea that all this construction, the city, uh, you know, uh, it's going to be you know people can lose themselves in it, and and ironically, it's in nature uh, on an island where there's literally nothing nothing on it, no vegetation, no trees, and that's where she right. disappears. You know, right? Ah, uh, 
Uh, great movie. Okay. Uh, we've come to the conclusion. Uh, Alexander, what is the fifth and final movie on your top five? Well, I, I've kept this one for last because, uh, oh man, I, you know, I, I, I keep saying the apartment, but this one is uh, way, way, way up there for me. Uh, it's the fugitive kind. You might think that there's as many, as many kind of people in this world. There's only two kinds: the buyers and the ones that get bought. No, there's another kind. What kind? It's a kind that don't belong no place at all. By the great Sidney Lumet, his fourth film, which is sort of mind blowing because he's in such such keen control of the craft by then. I, yeah, I um, you know, and I'm I'm a fan. I'm a huge fan of his work. I'm a fan of Tennessee Williams, but I guess I gotta say this one for me is really special. I mean, I as much as you you think about the great all the great Tennessee Williams plays, you know, this one for me is quite possibly his most his most powerful um and and the way that it's filmed i mean you know you you think about the opening scene uh you know this the, the, the you know the the focus the, the the singular focus on marlon brando on uh you know snakeskin as he's called you know xavier uh you know really talks about his guitar you know his, his connection with his guitar i mean so you instantly build this uh, emotional connection with him and the way he actually wraps his guitar with his snakeskin jacket when it rains, you know, is, uh, is incredible. But, you know, there's so many just, you know, the, the moments, you know, I, I think about the, the, the medium shot that slowly turns into um, a close up of Brando as he tells, you know, Mrs. Torrance, uh, was, you know, Anna Magnani, what his kind is, you know, which is the, the fugitive kind. And, and it's so interesting because the lighting changes, it becomes completely expressionistic. And you somehow buy it. And, I, and of course, how can you not think about his monologue in Apocalypse Now? You know, you, 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 know, you, you sort of juxtapose these two moments. I mean, those are just really rare sort of like cinematic moments, you know. Uh, I mean, the, the super slow dissolve from, you know, the makeshift bedrooms, curtains when they're, you know, making love for the first time to the sun through the trees, you know, the sort of one moment of hope you have, you know, the way she loses her father, obviously to the mob, you know, right. Who's burned, burned to a crisp by, by, by this mob in his wine garden. And then she loses him. In the same way, uh, it, it, you know, it's it's literally it's like it's like Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo losing the same person twice in the same way. It's it's very oh, similar. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Uh, I mean, it's uh, you know the all the pathos of uh, of a Tennessee Williams, but but that sort of that triangle, you know, and 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 let's not forget Joan Woodward Woodward and this just extraordinary performance. She's Ooh. so good. And and well, you know what I found what I found fascinating in, in in about her 
in terms of these five movies in conversation with each other, mm-hmm. she's almost like the Janet Lee of the fugitive kind in that if you don't know this story, mm-hmm. you would think from the first 40 minutes that it's going to be a, bo- a movie about her. Like that Anna Magnani is not all that present in sort of the first act of the movie. Um, and it's only sort of once they get around the halfway mark that that romance becomes the sort of central one. You might think that it's going mm. in that other direction for quite some time. Yeah, and, and I, I was actually going to draw a comparison or, or, or a line, at least not a comparison, but with Midge in, in Vertigo. She, Ooh, she's sure. the woman that he should be escaping with. Right. And 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 then he doesn't, and then of course pays the ultimate price as a result of that, you know. Uh, but the dialogue, I mean, you know, gosh, the dialogue, the dialogue, the lines. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, when his line about our our own, everybody's sort of sol- solitary confinement inside our own lonely skins. I mean, whoa. Ooh. Oh, I love that. No, I mean, and that's, it's, it's such a fascinating um, combination of filmmaker and writer because in in a lot of ways they're, they're, they're quite opposite Lumad and Tennessee Williams. Like this is the Northern urban filmmaker and sort of the Southern Gothic poet. Uh, (laughs) But I find in this film that they complement each other really well. Like his, the way he sort of grind, you know, make sure that everything is ground in reality keeps the film from getting, I think too overly melodramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the, the poeticism of the dialogue gives the film more, more flourish than perhaps some of his other work does. It's, it's, yeah. it's a really, it's an, it's a really extraordinary film. Oh, and, and yeah. And, and the performances are just absolute power. Oh my God. You, you can't oh my God. get any better than this. You know? Yeah. The, these three really working at the top of their game. <laughs> Um, and also like kind of at their hottest, like, oh my gosh, it's, it's a scorching movie. Totally. Um, all right, sir. Well, that is an excellent top five. Thank you so much for bringing it to us again. Thank you for bringing the housemaid into our lives because we'll never be the same. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. I'm glad. And now a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. And with Mubi, don't forget each and every film is hand-selected so you can explore the best of cinema streaming anytime, anywhere. So, for example, this week, if you're looking to watch a little something that's streaming in the U.S. from 1960, I would recommend America as Seen by a Frenchman. A super cool documentary, uh, not exactly exploring the the depths and valleys of the American psyche, more sort of just about spectacle. It's about nice. a lot of Americans going on vacation, but it's amazing. Good. It looks super cool. His perspective is great. There's like a driving shot down the the Las Vegas Strip when the strip was still walkable. It's really mm-hmm. like it's the it's the best I've ever sort of it's the best version of sort of that like that style of the strip that I've <laughs> seen in any movie. It's really yeah. very cool. And in the end he says that in America advertising is an excuse to create beauty and is the way Americans pray to God. So, like, dig that for a perspective you're not familiar with. America is seen by a Frenchman from 1960. How about you? Uh, Also streaming in the U.S. from 1960 is Cat and Mouse, which is a very early Jim Henson 
animated short. He was not yet messing with the Muppets. Uh, it's hand-drawn animation with music by the jazz drummer Chico Hamilton or Chico. I don't, I never know how to say it now that I found out that Chico Marx said Chico, but uh, <laughs> Jim Henson hand drew this thing. Mike, it runs, I'm not kidding, 79 seconds. But in 1960, for independent filmmaker doing hand-drawn animation, you know, he probably spent like three years on it <laughs> and it's great. It's uh, stylish and cool and the music is great and what he's doing is really interesting and it has a very unexpected ending. So uh, check out Cat and Mouse, also from 1960, streaming in the U.S. on Mubi. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash A Very Good Year. And that's M-U-B-I dot com slash A Very Good Year, all one word, for a whole month of great cinema for free. Free! All right, let's find out what films were winning trophies and making money. Here's Mike with awards and box office. Sell out with me, oh yeah, sell out with me tonight. They took home a lot of statues. Uh -huh. Best picture, best director for Billy Wilder, best original screenplay for Wilder, and IAL Diamond for The Apartment. Well-deserved, richly deserved, yep. but I do think it's crazy that, like, that a... You know, in the like we'll mention, uh, Spartacus was out this same year. Like, it's sort of wild that uh, that a comedy won that big Oscar in a year when there was this sort of this the kind of epic uh, drama that they typically like to give Best Picture to, mm -hmm. and Best Director too. Yeah, you know, for well deserved. I mean, yeah, it's a good movie, but it's not the epic. Yeah, right. But they said, nope, uh, nope, just as hard. Best Actor for, to Burt Lancaster, Best Supporting Actress to Shirley Jones, and Best Adapted Screenplay to Richard Brooks for Elmer Gantry. Good movie. Solid movie. Uh, yep, that's great stuff. Yep. yep. All right, Jason, you're going to have to help me uh, figure out how I'm supposed to pronounce this one. Okay. No, you just pronounce it the regular way. It's just You just say it the regular way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Best Actress to Elizabeth Taylor for Butterfield 8. Yep. Yep. No, it's the 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 uh, the weird um, capitalization of both the B and the U is because Butterfield Eight is a phone number, if I recall correctly, uh, and that was how they used to do that when they would put letters into the phone numbers. I don't know. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor's really good in Butterfield Eight. That I that I can say for certain. <laughs> Wasn't suddenly last summer the same year? By the way, am I? Is it my imagination? Is it also nineteen sixty? I believe it was the year before, but I'm oh, going to no. double check that as we speak. Yes, really 19, great in that too. Yeah, 1959 was suddenly last summer, and then right. and then banged out Butterfield Eight the next year and won herself an Oscar. Good run yeah. for Liz Taylor. Best supporting actor went to Peter Usenoff for Spartacus. I like Spartacus. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. am. I am Spartacus. <laughs> Best foreign film went to Ingmar Bergman for The Virgin Spring. Ah, solid, solid, That's solid great. Bergman work. Yeah. Virgin Spring is so good. Yeah. Well, it was a great year, by the way, for foreign films too. I mean, we we yeah. have to we have to say that. I mean, so many great oh. films. Nineteen sixty. We got it. We got a nice long list of foreign films at the top of your lightning round. Stand by for that. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Some other significant award winners. The Golden Globes in this period weren't given out to Best Picture Drama and Best Picture Comedy Musical. They each got an award, Drama, Comedy, and Musical. So Golden Globe for Best Musical went to Song Without End. 
which I have never seen. I never have either. All right. It's got it's a big it's a big purple dinosaur. It's a thing. It's not that great. <laughs> okay. uh, the apartment won comedy and Spartacus won drama. Golden Globe for best director went to Jack Cardiff for Sons and Lovers, which I also have not seen. But I like Jack Cardiff though; he's good. Likewise, I have not I have not seen it. Golden Globe for best actress went to Greer Garson for Sunrise at Campobello. Good, solid stage adaptation FDR play. I like Sunrise at Campobello. Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor went to Sal Minio for Exodus. Ah, Alexander, have you seen Exodus? I have not. I have not. I have not, I have not either, but I'm all for giving Sal Minio Oscars. Or, excuse it's me, Golden four, Globes. It's four, four plus hours, right? If I'm not yeah, it's mistaken. a really long, it's really a daunting running time. He was a little out of control with that one. Yeah. <laughs> And the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress, well-deserved, Janet Lee in Psycho. See, we make fun. See, Alexander, we have found as we've gone into like the 60s and 50s that everyone makes fun of the Golden Globes, but it, there are frequently ones that they got right and the Oscars got wrong. <laughs> Kudos, Hollywood Foreign Press Association, for giving Janet Lee her flowers at the accurate, appropriate time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the domestic box office. Let's go this, top. Let's count down the box office. Man, top 10. this I've I, this may be. I don't know that we've ever had a box office top ten where I have seen fewer of the movies than I have in this one. This one is odd. Okay, I feel like you've got it. You've got to hit at least maybe half of them. Uh, I don't nope, know. Nope. Nope. All right. All right. Number ten from the terrace. No idea. Nope. <laughs> Number nine. Ocean's Eleven. Okay, that I've seen. The. Yeah. It's sure. the Sin- Sinatra Ocean's Eleven. Not 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 that great. Not not really good. Um, yeah. uh, cool, but uh, but not a particularly well made picture. The Soderbergh remake is far far better. Number eight went to the apartment. Okay, oh, people liked that. the apartment. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. Number seven went to Butterfield Eight. Yep, good good. Number six went to the World of Susie Wong. Haven't seen it. Mm-mm. I'm sure there's nothing. <laughs> that would get that movie canceled now. I'm sure there's nothing in there. I'm sure it's fine. We would make us uncomfortable now. Number nope. five went to the Alamo. Yeah, oh. haven't seen it. Haven't seen it. I, I remember it, obviously, because you remember the Alamo, but I've never seen it. <laughs> it is exactly what you think it is. There we go. It's trying to be all of the things that it's not, but it's yep. exactly what you think it is. Of yeah. course. Uh, number four went to the Swiss Family Robinson. Yeah, never saw that. Okay. Number three to Exodus. We've covered, haven't seen that too damn long. Did people like sit through that whole ass thing? Yeah, yeah. Apparently, third in the top ten. Probably went back a few times too, you know. There you go. You know, Mike, air conditioning in the movie theaters. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. air conditioning and TV wasn't that great yet. Good call. Uh, Number two went to Psycho. All right. Mm. Only number two. I'm surprised. Okay. Well, well, it, it was it was only beat by Spartacus. So oh, you know, yeah. I mean, okay. right? Yeah, that makes a certain amount of sense. All right. Thank you, Mike, for the uh, the awards and box office. Alexander, you ready to do a lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Mike's going to put five minutes on the big clock. I've got a whole long list of other 1960 movies. Uh, if you have something to say about it, do. If you don't, you can just pass. And okay. here we go. Michael Powell's aforementioned Peeping Tom. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously love it. 
no psycho, but great film. Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless. Great little film. Yeah, well, that one could have made the list, you know. Um, I, I thought about it for a while, put it aside. But yes, of course, I mean, massively important film. The uh, the uh, traumatic from your childhood eyes without a face. <laughs> stop it! Stop it! <laughs> yeah, that, that's Pur- I'll never forget. It's it's really seared into my brain. Yeah. Purple Noon was released in nineteen sixty. Oh, yes, the talented Mr. Mr. Ripley, right? Uh, yeah, the, the first incarnation. So good, so good. Ronald Neem's Tunes of Glory. You know that one. I thought long and hard about. You know, I, 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 I was heartbroken not to put it on the list. It's one of my all-time favorite films. I mean, that that uh, performance, uh, mm-hmm. Alec Guinness is uh, mm-hmm. his best. Um, what a movie. I mean, it's, you know, you, you have to go get the criterion disc. That's all I have to say. If you haven't watched it, go, go get it. There you go. The Bad Sleep Well. Great movie. Ah, yes. Uh, Kurosawa's version of, uh, of Hamlet. Absolute, absolute powerhouse. Yes. Uh, the Naked Island was released in 1960. My dad's all-time favorite film. My my late really film. Yes, and for for years he, he kept telling me about it, and I didn't know where to find it, and then I found it and blew me away. Uh, Kaneto Shindo. Um, uh, it's interesting, you know, like it might be an interesting companion piece to Laventura in some level. Huh. I should right. do a double bill and see if they talk to each there other. You go. There you go. Shout out to the old man. Uh, mm-hmm. Saturday night and Sunday morning. Yeah, great. You know, British New Wave kitchen sing drama. Mm-hmm. Albert Finney, so good. Yeah, God, he was. Uh, Mario Bava's Black Sunday. Yeah, I. You know, I, I'm not a. I'm not a crazy Bava fan. I, I'm. I'm probably going to offend a lot of people by say, by saying that. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm good with it. Ozu's Late Autumn was released in 1960. Yes, that's, you know, I mean, his entire over, you know, is just so incredible. Uh, one of his greats. Inherit the Wind was released this year. I've never watched Inherit the Wind. It's one of those, it's one of those massive gaps in my, in my, uh, you know, cinephilia. So I have to, I have to get to it. It's a fine film. I also am a little, I played the Spencer Tracy role when we did it at North High School, Mike, Mike and I, back in the day. Uh, the Magnificent Seven was released in 1960. Uh, yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, yeah. What, what, what is there to say except that, of course, it's no, it's no Seven Samurai, but it plays really well after it. You know, it's just like, sure does. like Cedric Solaris is really, really strong. Uh, mm-hmm. Even if you're, you know, in love with the original Solaris, they both play really well together. Yes, indeed. George Powell's The Time Machine. You know, I don't think I've seen The Time Machine, actually. Or I may have seen it as a kid, but I don't No, I don't think I have. All right. So, William Castle's yeah. 13 Ghosts. Never saw that. The... First of the Roger Corman, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Vincent Price pictures, House of Usher was released in 1960. Yeah, that's great. I I love his Edgar Allan Poe. I have the whole Arrow box set, which is now worth a fortune. Um, Yes. They're wonderful. Yeah. Nice. Uh, (laughs) Roger Corman, a, a slightly less elaborate production, also released in 1960, The Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, of course. Yeah, great stuff. Gosh, Roger Corman, he's everywhere, man. 
banged it out. <laughs> Vincent Minnelli's Bells Are Ringing was released in 1960. Did not see that. Uh, Disney's Pollyanna. Did you see that one? I did not see that. <laughs> How about Russ Meyer's The Immoral Mr. Tease? I have not either. <laughs> <laughs> um, three Jerry Lewis pictures were released oh. in 1960. The Bellboy, Cinderfella, and Visit to a Small Planet. Okay, I watched Cinderfella, yeah, and not the other two. Uh-huh. Thoughts on Cinderfella? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I, 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 it's it. Well, look, I'm also French, so the the, the French love Jerry Lewis, right? That we all know this. So there's a part of me that will always <laughs> love Jerry Lewis, but I prefer him in Arizona Dream. I have to say, that's my and and, and of course the the King of Comedy. Those, that's my that's my Jerry Lewis personally. There we go. All right. We're on that note uh, of, of Jerry Lewis love. We will close out the lightning round. Alexander, you did quite good, sir. Quite good on the 1960 lightning round. Um, and now we're going to throw it to our friend W. Axel Foley for a quick PSA. Head on over to your favorite podcasting app. Give us a star, a rate, a review. Give us a written review and tell us that you love us because that's what lets people know that we're here. So, Alexander, once again, Lynch slash Oz's theatrical run begins June 2nd. Uh, where can people follow your work? Are you on social media? Is there a website? Where can people keep up with you? Yeah, so definitely exhibitedpictures.com. And uh, we're also on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Uh, I don't have a whole ton of time for social media, and but I'm around. Good. You can find me, Alexander Philippe. Uh, if you if you search, you'll find, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to always uh, meet uh, cinephiles and fellow film lovers, uh, filmmakers or whatever. So uh, but, you know, also look for me at some local Q&A's. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll be I'll be in uh, in L.A. for Lynch Oz in um, on the 10th in Santa Monica and the 11th at the new Vidiots in uh, Glendale. Oh, nice. Yay. Oh, yay, idiots. Tell them we said hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I am Fun City Cinema on Instagram, Jason Dash Bailey on Letterboxd. And of course, you can find under my lists the top fives for every episode of the show. Mike, where can the people find you? I am at Brainwashed Lib on Twitter. And we are now on Substack, a very good year.substack.com, where paid subscribers get bonus episodes, bonus writing, and much more. Mike, before we go, what is your favorite movie of 1960? Well, I have to give a shout out to Village of the Damned, mm. uh, which is good. great. If you're into sci fi horror, you know, yeah. it's about this little English village where everybody passes out one day, and when they wake up, all the women of childbearing years are pregnant with alien babies. It's oh, those kids bananas. are fucked up. <laughs> that movie is so good. That movie is so good. Uh, but my favorite movie from 1960 is called Letter Never Sent. It's a Russian oh, film. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm i just going to say, I'm just going to say it. it's my opinion, I guess. But, you know, I mean, American, you know, the Russians, like, invented all the shit. 
<laughs> they invented filmmaking. I mean, up until like 1960, more or less, right? Mm. And uh, and and this movie includes every technique thought of by any Russian filmmaker for the first 70 years of film. It is so badass. It's so creative. Yeah. It's so heavy. There's all these like shots of of low opacity fire that's just sort of like placed over the characters while they're acting. They do all these wild ass things with cross dissolves and stuff. It's mm. just an incredibly inventive movie um and really super cool it's about nice. four people trying to find diamonds in siberia there letter never sent it like starts with this dude writing a letter and you're like wait it's called letter fuck oh no you know what i mean like right from the beginning you're like that letter is not gonna get sent <laughs> <laughs> wonderful yeah. movie uh jason what is your favorite movie from 1960 uh i have to go with uh comanche station which is uh the conclusion of director Bud Bedecker and star Randolph Scott's renowned cycle. Uh, just these tight, tight as a drum uh, Westerns that are really like on that cusp between the traditional Westerns and the sort of revisionist Westerns of the 1960s and seventies. I plowed through that whole cycle about a year and a half ago. Uh, and these movies just knocked me clean on my ass. Uh, and there's a beautiful, I think, 4K set coming out from Criterion here in the next couple of months. Pick them up. But Comanche Station really, like, with each one, you see them sort of getting a clearer idea of what they're doing, what they want to say, what they want the Western to be, and where they want it to go. And that all comes through crystal clear in Comanche Station. It's really, really good. Um, and they're also available on uh, Indicator as well. You know, they, yes. they, they really Set if you, you should own both, really. Get the yes. set and the Criterion set and support yes. these two companies, you know? Absolutely. No, I watched the, the I watched them the first time on the Indicator set, so I'll watch them again on 4K when the Criterion comes out. Yeah. Uh, and that's how you got to do. Thank you again, Alexander, so much for doing this with us tonight. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. All right. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening.